Welcome to the Speed Racing Podcast and you'll be hearing from Peter O'Sullivan who's a professor at Curtin University in Perth in Western Australia. He works at BodyLogic there and he's prominent on Twitter at Pete O'Sullivan PT. And you'll know about Peter O'Sullivan if you're in the world of back pain and in sports medicine. And this is actually a follow-up conversation because he and I have talked about Tiger Woods' case in Tiger Woods' back pain issue previously about a year ago and now we're going to follow up because there's some interesting news and we begin by making the point that neither Peter nor I have seen Tiger Woods and we work off the media reports but we're going to discuss what many people on Twitter and in uh, sports medicine and sports physiotherapy are finding very interesting and so welcome to the podcast Peter. Thank you very much. If I just paint the picture, Tiger Woods had back surgery on March the 31st of 2014 and then he tried to play in August of 2014 and wasn't able to get through the PGA and you and I talked around that time so we're like a year follow-up now in September of 2015 and Peter what was the big news in the last couple of days in relation to Tiger Woods? Yeah well um, as, um, as you know we've been kind of tracking what's been happening with Tiger and, and uh, a release came out that he's gone for another surgery um, <clears throat> uh, to his back and the thing that really struck me when uh, when I had a look at uh, Tiger's official website is that I quote um, he had felt occasional discomfort in his back and hip in we- recent weeks um, and then was just going for a routine checkup on which occasion he was scanned and there was a so-called disfragment that was observed and then he was shot in for surgery straight away. So the thing that, you know, obviously he's had a, he's had a troubled last 12 months or so in terms of his ability to uh, participate in his sport with ongoing pain, uh, but this was a checkup for occasional discomfort. Um, not an acute episode of pain with radiculopathy and uh, nerve compromise, but a checkup for occasional discomfort. And the, the kind of feed forward of that process has ended up in uh, another spinal surgery, which I, I find absolutely astounding. What's the evidence about conservative management, good quality physiotherapy, for example, versus spinal surgery? Well, we don't know about good conservative spinal uh, management. Um, what, we've, what we know from the data is if you compare very, probably very limited or average conservative care, that, that uh, the long-term outcomes for, um, and this is for, you know, radiculopathy where you've got a prolapse um, and, you know, clear compromise of, um, of structures, that even compared to very average conservative therapy, the outcomes are no different uh, one and two years follow-up. So um, we don't know what it would be like compared to really good conservative care, and that would be a great study for the future, I think. Um, but the other thing we know about um, uh, someone who's had a prolapse, that even two years later, what, you, what the scan looks like, you know, the, if there's a, dis, a prolapse still there or not, doesn't correlate with the levels of pain and disability down the track. So something happens down the, pro, you know, in terms of people's re, report of pain and their levels of disability doesn't correlate well with what you see on a scan. Unfortunately, there's a common belief 
both within the healthcare system and by consumers that the scan t- gives the answer for you know ongoing back pain. And we know that um, particularly for back pain, the, the findings of uh, a disbulge or you know even a prolapse uh, uh, poorly correlate with the patient's experience. And in the report, which I've read as well, the media reports, it said that there was this surprise, like the agent said they were surprised that he had surgery. And the quote is, it wasn't what he expected, but it was a really quick turnaround, not because something had to be done right there, right now. Yeah, well, I'm sure the surprise came because they, that he didn't, you know, he did, he obviously wasn't, well, from what you can see in this, um, in this report, um, you know, he wasn't probably severely disabled and he, he wasn't reporting significant, you know, radiculopathy. So I suspect the surprise was that uh, he went in for a routine check. And, you know, I think it raises this whole issue about if you, if you have it, if you're checking up on someone, uh, would you routinely scan them? Because how, how helpful is the scan in terms of giving you an insight into what the patient's experience is? And, and I think there's a huge problem with that is, almost like preventatively scanning. And I think this is becoming an increasing trend that we're reverting to the scan because we think that that's going to tell us something about the patient's experience. And, you know, in this case, it came as a surprise, I presume, because they, they probably weren't correlating. You know, the, 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 the clinical presentation and what you saw on the scan didn't probably match up very well. But because the scan finding was there, he went straight in for the surgery as if, you know, that's going to be a treatment for discomfort or occasional discomfort in the back and hip. Um, you know, they're really important questions I think we have to ask of ourselves as a health profession as to how we start managing problems and that we go back, you know, we keep defaulting back to the structure as the basis of understanding um, people's experience of pain and, and disability. And it's a hugely problematic, but it's, um, it's very, very common. What's the most compelling evidence that the structure isn't the solution? Um, well, at a number of levels. I think um, if you look at the normal population, we know the prevalence of abnormalities is extraordinarily high. And I don't know how, um, you know, if you look at someone, say, around the age of 40, um, 35 to 40, then you're looking at um, prevalence of disc changes being probably within the 70% mark in terms of degenerative changes. We, the number of disc bulges are very, very high, around the 50%. Um, even prolapse is around 30%, and this is people without pain. Now, if you look at how predictive those findings are for future pain, and there was a lovely study of Jarvik uh, published in Spine in two, two, 2005 that found that those findings were not predictive of future pain. So if we're, as a health profession, screening people as a preventative measure, then the evidence tells us that prospective studies that look at how predictive these findings are for future pain don't support the practice. So in a sense, we're, this is a practice driven by belief rather than evidence. And, and that's hugely concerning because the other thing we know is that the negative fallout of scanning somebody, of like telling them that they've got a fragment of their back or they're disworn out, is it underpins, uh, you know, their confidence. So it, it kind of feeds into this, um, it has a whole health impact on the person's uh, prognosis, their levels of 
you know, confidence in their back. Uh, and that we know can lead to a whole bunch of other behaviours like increase in fear and protective guarding processes, which can get them stuck into a pain cycle. So that's on the basis of what the normative data says. But even if you look at pain patients, then as I indicated, the, the long-term outcomes for operating on a back end, particularly if you start looking at recurrent operations. And one of the things that was um, highlighted in that um, report was this idea of a cleanup. And um, to me, this idea of a cleanup really um, kind of uh, makes me think of the, uh, the OA knee story where we, you know, we've been having this practice of going in and arthroscopically cleaning up the knee as the idea it's going to fix something. And, and we know that it doesn't help. Um, and there's a huge push now to actually stop that practice. I suspect in the future we won't allow people to be cleaned up in the back for the basis of back pain because I, I, I would suspect that, I would predict that we'd find the outcomes probably not very good and maybe even um, lead to a worse outcome down the track. Yeah, there's a few quick ones on those points you raised, Peter. Is risk of actually making someone worse. Is it possible that if we sort of randomised 50 people who were in this scenario that we're thinking about, this theoretical scenario where a golfer comes in with um, mild back pain but definite limitation in his performance and has this sort of spinal surgery or we randomise to conservative management, is there a possibility that the group having the surgery might have worse outcome than the conservative management group? It'd be a fantastic study to do, and uh, I, you know, I'd, I'd put my hand up for a study like that. But I would expect so. Um, you know, you, you, the more you go into a, these structures and, and um, you know, intervene with these processes, you often see this kind of cascading effect. And we often see then the next default point is a displacement, or you know, so so let's say there's another flare up, and he goes back in for another scan, and there's no fragment. Then what's the option? It's like you're kind of left with the next option, which is either a displacement or a fusion of that of that level. And so we see this kind of cascading process where the more you intervene, you start running out of options and you start becoming more and more invasive in the options. And even in terms of, um, you know, disfusions, we know the outcomes compared to conservative care are no different. So there's this kind of um, escalating uh, process that that this kind of very focused biomedical route goes down around pinning um, the blame of pain on structure, which just tends to escalate. And then, of course, you go down the process of, well, you fuse that level and the pain's still there, so you kind of go for the next one. Um, and so you kind of get this massive domino effect where we see people presenting who are profoundly disabled, who have had multiple surgeries, um, and the outcome's not better. You know, like the outcome they will often describe this cascading process of actually losing function and escalation of pain where the system becomes highly sensitised because of, you know, these invasive processes. So there's a real risk that um, that, that kind of approach can escalate a problem, uh, not resolve it. I think on the fear of surgery, we know that many orthopaedic surgeons don't have their knees operated on when they rupture their ACL themselves skiing. And people in the profession, the healthcare professions, you know, like ourselves, we try to avoid surgery. But I think there's a perception for many people that it's a magic bullet. And yep. I'm going to ask you about a second surgery because I think sometimes people feel if the first one fails, then the second one's likely to succeed. But those of us in the field have a different perception. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know... We see this with people who just keep going and going and going back. And 
And um, I, I think it's this, this kind of growing desperation where you think, my God, you know, it didn't work the first time, therefore having a second crack. But I think it gets to a point where you start wondering if the second one doesn't work, then what's likely to work next? And, um, and you know, you'll see this kind of, it's like a dragnet effect that you just kind of start accumulating um, uh, issues with the more invasive you get. Uh, where it's, you know, more is not better. <laughs> we, we have this idea that more is better and, and more is often worse in these situations because it just makes things more complicated. Um, you know, there's the whole recovery process. There's obviously risk involved with, um, uh, with surgery as well, but, but the long-term outcomes in terms of, you know, the psychological impact, the, 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 the idea that, um, you know, this distrust of the structure that keeps on failing you, that underpins someone's, uh, you know, confidence, you know, particularly someone who's having to trust their body at a higher level in a sport like that. Um, there are all those other factors that become very important in that process. And I think when we start looking at uh, the other thing that struck me um, in that report, which sort of t- touches this, is this idea that both surgeries were a complete success. I think... Um, if I read the uh, report, um, it said the the um, uh, he's undergone a second successful microdiscectomy surgery. Um, the surgery was a complete success; he <laughs> was discharged. So it's already been called a complete success the day after he's had it. Now, how do we measure success? And and I suppose we would measure success on the basis of saying, well, what's your pain experience? What's your level of function? Can you go about your, the things in life that um, give you meaning? Um, we often don't rate surgery on the basis of those levels of success. We we measure it on blood loss and um, infection and um, you know what the scan looks like. So you often hear this. There was a, um, a a lovely um, paper that was published looking at knee replacements called "Looks Good Feels Bad" um, <laughs> because the surgeon's gone. Well, it looks perfect. It was a complete success, and the patient's going, "I've got terrible pain," and the surgeon's going, "But it looks good." And you, we hear this in back surgery, where the patient's been told it was perfect. You know, your structure looks good. The surgery is a complete success, and the person's going, "But I'm in pain and I can't function." And again, there's this kind of massive disconnect between um, what the what the belief is that you look at the scan and you go, well, it looks good now, so we've got rid of the fragment, therefore you must be okay. And the person's going, well, I'm in pain and I can't play a sport. So where do you go from there? <laughs> you know. And of course, if you've got a black disc, then it becomes, well, it's because you've got a degenerate disc. That's now because the problem. And therefore, the next step is to you know replace the disc or diffuse it. And, and that kind of cascading process linked to that, that underpinning belief that pain is about structure just drives people down that path, which can have a, you know, long-term, um, you know, accumulatively negative effect. Let's talk about how conservative management can help people because they have a mental image of surgery and, and so there's this mental image of removing the bad stuff that you're discounting. Yep. What are the ways that conservative management could help a golfer? Let's say someone had presented to a quality physio in March the 31st of 2014, just to pick a random date. And what sort of things could a quality physio have done, not so much in terms of the treatment prescription, but sort of at the cellular and and at the brain level to help them get better? Yeah, so one of the things that we know that um, often happens around pain is that the body develops 
behaviours around pain that becomes highly protective. And we know, we've known this with people with um, who might have recurrent back pain that you'll tend to see more co-contraction around the muscles around the trunk. Um, but then there are often beliefs around that that uh, if someone's had an experience of pain, then that can that can create this kind of deep-seated protective fear or guarding against um, uh, a, a movement direction even or something that was related to that event that might have triggered the, that pain, that then becomes like this subconscious protective behavior linked to an underpinning fear that leaves that person um, highly protective of an area of the body that they may not even be aware of. And we, we see this very often where you take people back into a provocative, you know, historically provocative position and the body guards it. So one of the things that we look for, um, you know, post-surgery or, or someone who's had an injury is whether, you know, first is what their beliefs are about their back. You know, do you trust your back? Are you confident in your back? Um, uh, have you got free movement? Because we know that um, people with pain often lose that ability to relax the muscles around the trunk to, me, to move freely. Um, and so we would go through a process of examining both the, the thoughts and the behaviours of um, uh, of movement to ensure that the person gets back to a normal, um, uh, a normal relaxed um, and efficient pattern of movement and then build conditioning on that. Now, what we often see is that when you're in pain, you become hypervigilant. And you, you say to someone, how often do you think about your elbow? I often say this to my patients with back pain. How much are you thinking of your back? And I'm thinking about it all the time. So what are you thinking? Well, I'm thinking I've got to protect it. So how do you go about doing that? Well, I'm pulling my belly in and I'm tightening my glutes or I'm holding my posture in a certain way. And what you realise that hypervigilance drives a protective behaviour that actually leaves people trapped in the cycle of protective guarding, which then has this kind of biomechanical effect of abnormally loading those structures. So you've got like a top-down, bottom-up influence where you know we know factors like um, fear or lack of confidence um, and hypervigilance can kind of wind up um, the system centrally, um, and then you've got these local factors around protecting a painful structure, which can overload those those structures, and then you've got a motor system that's not efficiently uh, working and is overworking. That that in itself um, can be a mechanism for pain. So you end up with this whole mixed pain picture. Uh, where people are trying hard to uh, persist with an activity, but underpinning that, they, they don't trust their body. And, um, and so that building the trust back in the body of realising that pain is not just about the structure, that dislove movements. They love not to be protected. They love to be moved and moved in a normal way, but not to be guarded and protected. Um, and then to gradually take someone back into that activity uh, in, in a graded way, to, to build their confidence, to essentially not have to think about the back when you're hitting a ball. And often what you'll hear, hear people say in an athletic situation is they can't stop thinking about it and they're overthinking it. And, you know, if you've got someone who's naturally prone to be a perfectionist or, you know, in, a, in an elite sporting situation, often the mind becomes the biggest barrier to change because they start, they just get caught in these loops where they're, just overthinking things, over-focusing, over-contracting, 
you know, overprotecting and it just leaves them trapped. So they just keep getting these flaring up of pain and underpinning that are the, you know, the psychological processes of frustration and, and lack of confidence and um, starting to feel the stress that might come with the anticipation of pain. And we know those are, you know, centralizing, uh, sensitizing factors that kind of just feed these vicious processes. And just explain the centralizing, sensitizing bit for us. Yeah. So we know that if you're, um, you know, if you're, if you're fearful of, of an area, if you're, um, uh, if you're hypervigilant of an area, that can magnify uh, a pain response. So this has been shown in, um, um, Mick Sullivan's a, a, a pain psych, uh, in Canada. And he did a very interesting study looking at repeated movement. Um, or repeated bending tasks with people with back pain. He found that those people who had lower mood, um, who had um, increased fear and had greater catastrophic thoughts, um, showed a much a, a larger pain experience. So their pain experience was greater. Uh, and so you know the the central nervous system is modulated um, by our thoughts. And so when when our thoughts are influenced by, you know, we start thinking that we're broken or damaged, we start thinking on focusing on things, that will magnify what could be a peripheral pain source. So your experiences is that you'll feel more pain. Um, and essentially the brain, you know, if you listen to Lorimer's work around this whole perception of threat, um, when the brain is threatened, it will protect you, um, or attempt to protect you. Often it's done in a way that's in the long term not helpful, but it will put like a spotlight on that area and it will magnify the pain experience. So you have this whole amplifying effect of, um, you know, what we see as fear or anxiety around pain and hypervigilance and thinking, my God, I've got to protect this body part, which ramps the pain system up. And good to refer folks to these colleagues and this other good work that you're always celebrating in your own talk. So Mick Sullivan, you couldn't get the O in front of his name, right? He's just Mick Sullivan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's a, he, if you ever get to hear him, he's a fabulous presenter. So he's done a lot of work on cat, catas- catastrophizing in pain um, and, um, and looking at the role of those psychological factors on people's pain experience. Some very interesting work. So that was published in um, the journal Pain. I think back in 2009, um, and he described the the ramping up, particularly with fear, the ramping up of pain experience with repeated movement, um, and that could be repeated golf swing. <laughs> it just happened to be repeated lifting in his task, but some, um, but you know, fascinating. And of course, that what goes with that is a change of behaviour, because you know, if you're frightened, you'll guard something more. So you'll see this is not just reflected in the mind, but it's reflected in the body. That um, that these thoughts are reflected in the behaviours around the way you move, and that will you can pick that up on stuff like EMG. That you'll see greater levels of EMG when you're frightened of doing something, or and it might not be an overt overt fear, but it, this underlying, you know, um, uh, anticipation that this could you could be doing something that's going to hurt you. And there's Lorimer. He's just the one name guy, like Pelly. Lorimer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. So I think um, you know Lorimer's done a huge amount of work, and I, there was a really interesting study from from um, Dan Harvey, one of the guys in the air group, that looked at um, neck pain and um, looked at people um, who, when they turn their neck, get pain, and then they did this visual um, illusion experiment where they made them think they were turning their neck to the same point, but it actually wasn't. 
but their perception it was, and when they turned it to the point where they perceived, where they perceived it was before, but it wasn't, they actually experienced pain. So the brain's kind of wired to, to kind of this feedback loop in terms of this experience of pain can create pain. You know, your anticipation of pain actually can be a pain generator. And, uh, you know, Lorimer talks a lot about, um, you know, pain comes from the brain. And, you know, obviously there are so many central processes that kind of ensnare you in this process that we would see that, you know, obviously there are peripheral factors that are, that are emerging around sensitized structures, but also your, your anticipation of pain um, can be a driver of pain itself as well as pain memories, you know, experience of pain in the past um, that kind of powerfully feed into these, um, you know, these experiences around pain and movement. Great resources here, Peter, to the BJSM listener. Thanks a ton. And Lorimer also has the YouTube TEDx Adelaide uh, chat where he talks about his experience. In yeah, absolutely. Getting bitten by the snake and everything. Yeah. I recommend that to listeners, 200,000 um, views on YouTube. Thanks for listening to this BJSM podcast. And remember, there are over 200 podcasts on our site, which are all freely available through SoundCloud. If you download the BJSM app, it will keep you up to date with new advances and you should be able to find our updates on your favourite social media channel.